The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. I really, really love sleep. I'm going to shoot straight with you. I went to bed last night at 9 p.m., and it was glorious, okay? I have, I have no regrets whatsoever. Um, sleep is an incredible thing, and it's something that every single human being requires. You have never met a human. You've met some people who can get by on a little sleep, but you have never met a person, and there's never been one, that says, yeah, I just stopped sleeping when I was 10 and just never picked it back up again. I just don't do it. You never find that kind of person. We all, it requires, it's an actual part of our physiology. We need it. We need sleep. I'll never forget uh, taking um, our oldest daughter, uh, Scarlett, when she was an infant. She was a couple weeks old. Rebecca and I took her to the pediatrician, and we take little baby Scarlett, and we bring her to the pediatrician. He's just, it's just a routine checkup, and he's checking on her, and then he looks at us, and we didn't say anything along these lines. He just looks at us, and he says, You know, sleep deprivation is a torture in some countries. And he must have just seen like our bloodshot eyes and our hair all askew like we'd just come out of a cave or something. And and I remember I felt so like vindicated when he said that because I was feeling, I am being tortured right now. I mean, this is painful. Sleep deprivation is, I mean, it's painful. It's, we absolutely need it. Now I want to just ask you to think about this for a second, and maybe it's a question you've never stopped and asked. Why did God wire us to require sleep? He didn't have to do that. I mean, he could have made life without the requirement of sleep. He intentionally wired that into our, our needs. And think of like how much of our life will be given to being unconscious. Like 25%, maybe 33, maybe a third of our entire lives, we will be asleep. He he intentionally did that. Why? Well, we're going to take a look at a a passage that talks about the daily rhythm. And, And here's the purpose of doing this. As we've got a brand new year, we've got a blank canvas And it gives us an opportunity to say, okay, what do I want on this canvas this year? Like, what do I want 2019 to look like? What pieces do I want? What colors do I want to bring on this canvas? We're talking about these core concepts and fundamental beliefs that we want to add on to that as as we're entering into 2019 with some intentionality. And I want to show you one fundamental principle that really has many different implications And just this one fundamental principle that we would be really advantageous to us to really think and digest in 2019 because out of this one kind of idea deeply embedded in scripture, it's got theological implications. It's got practical implications. It's got even, there's some beautiful poetic implications that affect our lives. And we're going to take this one thing, kind of turn it around in the light, get the different reflections and paint those things on our canvas and consider how to paint those things on our canvas this year as we have a fresh start in in 2019. So I want you to open in your Bible or your Bible app 
to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to go to the very, very beginning. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 1. If you go ahead and open there. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to look at the very first verses in the entire Bible. Because there's something embedded in there, a theme that's repeated throughout Scripture that has many different implications for our lives. Look at what it says. Genesis 1, verse 1. Opening words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So what's this chapter 1 of Genesis about? It's God inventing everything. It's the beginning. It's the beginning of time. It's the beginning of matter. It's the beginning of absolutely everything. This is Genesis 1 is the creation. Now you can imagine, okay, this is God's masterpiece, the scripture. It's, it's his words. And he's describing one of the most fundamental questions every human has. Where did this all come from? You can imagine the way he describes it is going to be absolutely just beautiful and brilliant and powerful. And that's what Genesis 1 is. It is beautiful. It's rich. It's deep. It's filled with a powerful truths. And there's one fundamental truth that we have to get out of Genesis 1. It's the very first line. It is the foundation. It's the foundation of really anything else that can be built on in the scripture. It's very fundamentally this. In the beginning, God created. God is the creator. God is the one who did it. God is behind everything. In the beginning, it was God. I say that because as we move through Genesis 1, there's a lot of powerful truths in here, and there's a lot of, there's different ways faithful, Bible-believing Christians interpret Genesis 1, and there, and there may be different ways, just even within our own church, there may be differences in the way we interpret what God is trying to say in Genesis chapter one, but there's one thing that is absolutely certain as the foundation that every faithful Christian that's faithful to the scripture believes. Whatever else you interpret, the most important piece is that God is behind it. God did it. That's the first thing it tells us. The entire Bible tells us God did it. That's what's most important. I want you to look at another detail here because this moves us closer to the main key thing we want to pull out of this. When we see the opening of just God and this vacuum of nothingness, I mean, it's hard for our brains to even go there because there really wasn't even a vacuum. There was nothing except God. What could that have, we, can't, we don't even have a framework for that. But it says in the beginning, it's talking about God is starting to make things and it says God is hovering over the darkness is how it describes and so here's what I want you to see. First, there's darkness. But God is creating everything, so we've got to interpret darkness as the absence of something rather than a something. Does that make sense? Darkness is there as an absence 
of something, but we see darkness first. This is important to understand this principle. Okay, I want to read these next three verses, and then we're just going to sit in these three verses for the rest of the day together. Here's what it says, verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And then look what it says. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. There, he's over the darkness, he speaks light into existence. Now, if it, was, if it was hard enough for us to imagine nothingness there with God, this is also hard for us to understand. He, it's not that he's making the sun here. He's not, a, he's not started making sources of light. That comes on day four. He's speaking the concept of light into existence. Do you see this? He's speaking that in. There was darkness, and then he speaks light into existence. Now, here's the part I want you to, this is what we're going to sit in. I want you to notice, he says, I'm calling the darkness night, I'm calling the, the light day, and then he wraps up this first day, and he says this. We've got to look at this very carefully. He says, there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now, we talked about this a little bit a few months ago. In our Mighty series, we talked about rhythms, and we talked about ancient Israel and the rhythm they had for the day and how it's different than the rhythm we have. And I want to spend some time digging more into this because there is some really, uh, there's some powerful truths that help us from all different angles, especially as we're thinking of going into a new year. The, the ancient, ancient Israel, God's people, viewed the day as starting at sundown. So as you go through the rest of the law, they would have like a a Sabbath day or a holy day. When the sun went down, that was the beginning of the holy day. They viewed evening, sunset, as the beginning of the day. So their day was from sunset to sunset. Now, technically, according to the way we operate, we're a little bit more scientific. We have a very precise moment when the one day ends and a new day begins. It's midnight, and that happens when some of us are asleep. I am certainly asleep at that point. Some of you are asleep. One day ends and the new day begins. That's kind of how we think about it scientifically. But more functionally, the day begins in the morning. That's how we, we think. We wake up to a new day. Now that looks different for some of us than others. Some of us, the alarm goes off, the sun is shining, the birds are chirping, the smell of flowers wafting into our homes. We stretch, what could, what glorious things could this day have for a cup of coffee? Ah, brand new day. That's some of you. Some of you, the alarm goes off, and you think to yourself, why did society create the most obnoxious noise in history to be the buzzer of an alarm so that I think there's a nuclear war about to happen every morning? 
and we throw that alarm clock across the room, okay? We stumble out of bed, you know, like we've got like some soreness in our neck, okay? Our eyes are all dry. We don't have our eyes open. We're walking across the floor of our room. We step on a toy that our child left there the night before. Now we need foot surgery, okay? We walk, you know, towards the kitchen trying to get to a cup of coffee. We find that the dog swallowed a throw pillow last night, regurgitated it in the kitchen the next morning, and there's no coffee, okay? Now, whichever morning is your typical morning, okay, we functionally operate like the morning is the new day. We, we functionally operate like, okay, we, we wake up in the morning and we go to work, we go through our day, and then at the end of the day, in response to working, we rest and go to sleep. That's just, that's how we're programmed. That's how cultures for centuries have functioned. But I want to push into this idea of what how God wired the day, and you see this carrying through the Old Testament, it's not morning then evening, it's evening then morning. It's not all my daily activity and then sleep, it's sleep and then all my daily activity. And there's some powerful truths that work themselves out if we consider that in our lives. Now before I go into this, I, I want to make sure, this is not something to be like dogmatic about, this is not something to say, I'm going to change my clocks and we're going to do all this differently. It's not about that. Because even in scripture, you see every now and then you see like his mercies are new every morning. I mean, it appreciates newness of the morning. It's not something to be dogmatic about, but it is a principle and we can draw out a couple critical concepts that we can work into our lives as we've got a brand new year in front of us. There's three different concepts we can pull out of this idea of evening, then morning. One is theological, one's intensely practical, and one is just beautifully poetic, and it really will transform our lives if we can work it into our lives. I want you to consider this today. Here's, here's the first one. When we think about evening, then morning, that reveals something. Evening, then morning reveals control. I want you to think about sleep. <clears throat> sleep is, in and of itself, it's vulnerable. It's probably the most vulnerable thing we do all day. We're unconscious. If you, uh, we have in our home uh, these video monitors we have for our kids because they're little and we keep an eye on them at night, see if they're crying or rolling around or whatever. But man, when you can just see the face of a child sleeping, your child, your grandchild sleeping, I mean, it's so peaceful. You see just how vulnerable. It's just there's something just so sweet about that. Sleep is inherently vulnerable, okay? S for most of us, sleep is probably, you're unconscious, you're lying there. Sleep is probably the most vulnerable moment of our regular routine. Now, some of you are saying, not me. I sleep like a ninja, okay? Like, I'm ready at any moment, okay? Some of you are really light sleepers. Let's see the light sleepers in the room, okay? Some of you could say, like, yeah, a train could come through my room, run over me, and I would not wake up. Let's see those deep sleepers Okay, yes, that's a little bit more on the side that I am. Okay, but fundamentally, sleep is a very vulnerable thing. And that communicates us. God wired us. Again, remember, he didn't have to wire us to need sleep, 
but he wired us to absolutely need it as part of our daily rhythm. And the fact that sleep is vulnerable is not lost on the truths of the scripture. Listen to this verse in Psalm uh, 121. It's going to be up here on the screens. Let me just read it to you. It's talking about God. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not, what does it say? Slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor what? Sleep. The Bible makes a point to tell us God does not sleep. He doesn't get tired. He's not worn out. He, his, his mental uh, functioning does not like wane at all. He does not need it. That's leading us to a conclusion because we need it. It's reminding us of something very fundamental every single day. We are not God. You say, well, that's pretty obvious. Apparently, we need to be reminded of it daily. We are not God. We need the vulnerability and the surrender of sleep. I mean, even in sleep itself, I mean, sleep is not something you like just choose. And now I will sleep. That doesn't happen. You surrender to it. Sleep overtakes you. The, the concept of sleep is a daily vulnerability every single day. Okay, so with that stated, look at the order that he wired for sleep. I wonder if there's a reason that we as a culture think about sleep coming after all of our hard work and effort. What we do is we wake up, ah, new morning, new day. I'm going to work, 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 work until I can't work anymore, and then I will fall asleep. Like, that's kind of our paradigm. It's morning, then evening. It's effort, then rest. It's my own works, and then my surrender. But I wonder if there's a very clear paradigm God is wiring into our thinking by starting with evening and then going to morning. Starting with vulnerability and surrender and then going into our efforts. Let me ask you a couple questions because this, this idea runs deep. When it comes to a problem in your life, a difficulty, how often do we do it like this? We try everything we can to figure it out. We ask counsel. We study. We, do, we, we figure out, okay, I've got to do this. I've got to figure this out. I, gotta, I, I work and I, my effort and I exert. I'm going to do this. I'm going to figure this out. And we do all this stuff, do all this stuff. And finally, when we have no more options, we pray about it and ask for prayer about it. We go to our, our community group and we're like, look, I've been trying to figure this out. And I mean, it's just, I'm desperate. Can you please pray? What's that? It's effort, 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 effort then surrender when we're aware of our vulnerability. I wonder if, it's, if that's a control thing. We assume we should be in control. So we assume that we should do it until our hands are pried off, we realize we're not in control, realize we're vulnerable and that we need to surrender it to God. I wonder if it just flat out reveals control. Whereas what if a better paradigm is, God, I've got this issue, first thing I'm gonna do I'm going to surrender to you. You've got this. I'm going to pray, God, I'm going to hand this to you. I'm going to cast my burdens to you. You've got this. I need you to do it. And I, I'm going to be faithful before you to strive with my part, but you guide what I'm going to do. 
and start with the vulnerability, start with the surrender, and out of that work. You following me here on this paradigm? Like I wonder if we, we should start with resting that it's in his hands rather than striving, 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 getting worked up, getting desperate, and then saying, oh, that's right, I need to pray about it, and yes, it's in your hands. What if I started there and then out of that did everything I could? It's evening, then morning. It's vulnerability, then work. How about this one? To the, the people in the Old Testament, there was a law when it comes to their offerings they were to give to God. And there's this principle, he called them to give of their first fruits. And what would that mean? That would mean whatever you harvested of your crops, that would mean whatever of your flocks, like however your herds multiplied, what you would do is you'd sit down and you'd give first to God. But that's counterintuitive, right? That's actually pretty vulnerable. What would make more sense is let's say you, have, uh, you grow carrots. You have a carrot farm. You'd sit down, you'd look at your whole carrot harvest, and you'd say, okay, first of all, what do I need to feed my family? Okay, that's here. What do I need to invest and hit my, my, um, my, my farm goals, like my, my business goals? This is what I'm going to invest in the business goals. What am I going to say, okay, this is how I'm going to invest and save up for the future? And then these are some things I wanted to do just because I've been wanting to do that here. And then let me see what's left over and offer those to God. That, that's maintaining control because I can make sure all of these things are taken care of and then give to God. But that's not the principle. Start with vulnerability. Okay, God, what do you want me to give back to you? Well, wait a minute. What if I don't have enough for the rest of this? Right there just reveals who I think is in control. Who gave me all the carrots? Who's in complete 100% control of how my carrot farm grows? God. Start with surrender. Start with resting in that it's him. It's the same principle for us as we give generously. We, we say, God, what do you want me to give? We start with that, and then I, I, I rest in his provision. I rest that he's in control, and then operate out of that. But let's take this even one step deeper, because this runs deep. What does religion across the board teach us? Around the world, different traditions, religion teaches us, here are the religious chores and duties that we do. You, you, you're, you're generous, or you, you do these religious practices, or you pray a right way, or you worship a right way, you do all of these things, so that you can get to the place where you can say, oh, all right, I'm good enough. And so we work, 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 work to rest in, I'm going to make it to heaven. I'm going to make it to paradise. I'm going to make it to nirvana. I, I have been good enough. That is the paradigm of religion. The gospel, what Jesus did, what Jesus taught, completely blew that up, which is why he is so profound. Jesus is God in the flesh coming to earth while we're still sinners, Dying on the cross, taking all of our sins on himself, paying for our sins, rising again from the dead so the punishment is fully paid for and placing his perfect righteousness on us so that even though we didn't deserve it, what he did was achieve 
right standing before God. We're, we're not depending on the righteousness of ourselves, the righteousness of Christ. He achieved our approval on our behalf, so we just put our faith in him. So we rest in his approval, right? We start with his approval, with God's approval. God, you love me. God, I'm resting that I'll spend eternity in heaven because of what Jesus did. I'm gonna start from there and flow out of that rest into striving to live a life that's pleasing to you. You see that fundamental paradigm? It's rest, then work. It's evening, then morning. And that paradigm fundamentally reveals our paradigm of control. I wonder if the reason that so often we actually think morning to evening is because we start with control rather than start with surrendering it. I mean, think about this. Kind of ironically, what is it that so often keeps us up at night? And I'm not talking about, you know, that sometimes there's medical issues or there's dietary issues. I mean, it, that, that can be like really complicated. But I'm saying just kind of regularly, what is the basic thing happening emotionally that's keeping us up at night? It's worry. Worried about the future. Worried about, what, about that relationship. Worried about what that person thought. Worried that I did the wrong thing. Worried I said the wrong thing. Worried I should have said this. Worried about this and this and this. And what is worry? Worry is the anxiety produced by realizing I am out of control that I no longer have control. Worry and rest do not go hand in hand. But I rest when I realize he who spoke the concept of light, having no need for stars, is in control. Then I rest. There's a theological principle out of this that we've got to work into our lives. We've got, we got to paint this on the canvas. I start with surrender and rest, and then I strive out of that. I start from that position of vulnerability. It's evening, then it's morning. But there's another thing, and this one's intensely practical. Very, very practical. Evening, then morning, releases preparation. Theologically, uh, evening, then morning, it helps me think about it. it, reveals who I think is in control. But evening then morning, it releases preparation. Because think about it, if I'm morning then evening, if I'm work all day, then my evenings, I'm talking very practically here, my evenings are all about recuperation. I'm working through the day and then it's like, oh, that was, that was crazy, that was exhausted. Oh, I just need to recuperate. And then finally I go to bed and then it's like, all right, let's go after this again. But when I think that when the sun goes down, it's like, what if I had this perspective? When the sun goes down, that's the beginning. So I'm already at the, at, at the next day. When the sun sets today, what if we thought about it like Monday is upon us? That will then get me thinking about, very practically speaking, how I'm prepared for the next day, right? Because the decisions we make the night before, they affect the next day, don't they? The choices I make, the way I, I, I operate that evening before, I mean, we certainly know the amount of sleep we get affects the next day. I mean, practically speaking, if the sun goes down, it's like, okay, Monday's here. That's going to release, I'm going to move away from just simply recuperating. It's going to get me like, okay, the day's here. It's going to start me thinking about preparation for the next day. And there's one key issue about evening preparation that we uniquely have to talk about as an American culture. Like there's something about our evenings that we have to be intentional about as Americans. It's the television. 
We, we've got, I've got two televisions up here. I've got one here. This one's from like the 60s, okay? This one, I mean, some of you were like, what is that box up there? Like, I don't, like, what's that thing? It's like so thick. I mean, like, what is it? This is a TV, okay? We've got a modern TV over here, but for some of you who don't know, like the way it used to be, this is going to blow your mind, okay? The way this used to be is you'd actually get up out of your chair. You'd walk across the room, okay? You'd reach out an arm, and you'd turn a dial to change the channel, okay? Or to turn, it's amazing. Or to turn the volume up or down, you'd get up out of your chair, and you'd actually have to do this motion, okay? I mean, mind-blowing. I mean, can you imagine getting up off your couch, like up and back and forth? Sounds exhausting, okay? You throw some burpees in halfway through, that's a pretty good workout right there, all right? All right, I mean, compared to today, I mean, we've got like, you know, thousands of channels or whatever it is in high definition. It's like if I can't see every blade of grass, I'm like, what's wrong with this picture? This is ridiculous, okay? But we love our television. We have for, for generations. And I want to read you um, a statistic here just about the amount of time we spend consuming television, okay? There's a, I got a couple different Sources, and I'm going to just read you, this one's from Gallup, that we spend 2.6 hours a day watching television. So you think about it, okay, <clears throat> like I don't know if that sounds like a lot or a little, but you think about watching television, okay, you watch the news, okay, maybe you watch the news, maybe you got um, the weather channel on in the morning because you're making sure that happens, maybe a morning show, okay, maybe you, you watch you know, Sports Center, you got to make sure you see the cycle, so you watch Sports Center. All right, and then there's like a show that's, yeah, I'm laying in the plane, I'm going to bed, I'm just going to watch my favorite show. But that was like so intense, it left you hanging, you watch a second one, okay. Very quickly, um, over two and a half hours, you know, it happens every day. But I was curious, okay, 2.6 hours. What if I wanted to front load my year with television watching? Like, what if I moved all my television watching to the beginning of the year? Like, I started first thing January 1st, and I watched all my year's worth of television straight through without sleeping. 2.6 hours a day equals 5.7 weeks of television watching without sleeping. So that would mean like if I decided I won't watch any more television, I'm going to take my 2.6 hours a day front loaded. I'm going to wake up um, January 1st at midnight. And I'm going to start watching television. I'm going to get all of that in. Then I will be into February before I stop. Now here's what I, I'm saying. Television, I, I'm not saying television is bad. There are definitely some things on television that are bad. Television could be good or bad. I'm not saying that we shouldn't watch any television. I'm just asking the question, should we, who love our TV watching, go into this new year considering and just monitoring the amount of TV we watch and have some boundaries, have some intentionality, especially because of how it, it affects our evenings and our preparation for the next day? Like, shouldn't we just at least consider it? Because often we are so, we, we, we are a busy culture. And how many times we say, oh, I would love to, but I'm just too busy. Well, apparently we got about 5.7 weeks of television watching every year. 
And so apparently we've got, we've got all of that time. I mean, what could be accomplished if we got an extra month? I mean, have you ever just stopped and say, look, man, I'd love to see my marriage move forward. I mean, it would, it would be nice if I could just get like two, three, maybe four weeks alone, you know, no kids, and we just devoted the whole thing to our marriage. I like could talk through things, work through things, think through things. I mean, imagine if you got another month, what could be done in your life? Like imagine, I mean, they're talking about what what could be done in moving your spiritual life forward if you got a whole month back to devote to your spiritual development? Like the books you could read, the scripture you could read. How about a community group? So often, like one of the biggest things we say, I would jump into a group, but I just don't have time. I have one month of television. I have to make sure I get in this year. I just, I cannot miss it even. I know that community group is only an hour and a half a week, but you don't understand. I've got a pace I've got to keep here, okay? Like what, what could we, if we just approach just this one segment of our daily ritual, so often as an evening ritual, one segment with a little more intentionality, what could be accomplished in our lives? Because here's what um, the scripture says, Ephesians 5 Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. He says, man, monitor your time. Like, use it wisely. Because there's one more wrinkle you need to know about those stats that I gave you, those statistics. That's from back when we were watching this TV. Those statistics are from the 60s. Let me give you this, the conservative statistics from now as we watch this TV right here, the fancy one with the thousands of channels and the perfectly ultra high def. Here's what the statistics are. Conservatively, we're watching over four hours a day on average. Some have it as closer to five. That's 8.9 weeks a year. That means if I front-loaded my TV watching in 2019... Not like 1960, but 2019. That means I'd start January 1st, and some point in March, I get up off the couch, okay? It's now perfectly the shape of my body. My muscles have atrophied. I've got to start learning how to walk again, all right? And I get back to the rest of my year having lost almost two and a half months. He's saying... Think about this, using our time wisely, our time, you know this, is the most valuable resource you have. You can pretty much go and get more of any other resource, but you can't get more time. It's the most valuable one. He's saying make the best use of your time. This cues us to think about that because it's evening then morning. We have this mentality of work, 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 work. Oh, I just got to recuperate. And he's saying, what if you looked at sundown? And what if you started saying, okay, now it's time to get ready and I'm going to start with rest. I mean, think of all the things we could do with our time to prepare. How about one of thing? Get more sleep. Like, what if less of the box, more of the pillow? And that may sound like really juvenile, but apparently we need to hear that because the statistics on how much sleep 
we're getting are really low, and the statistics of how much TV we're watching are really high. I was reading a medical journal article on the necessity of sleep, and like it had a ton of things, but I just stopped at one of them. It said, sleep helps your brain function properly. And I was thinking, that's kind of a high priority, brain functionality, okay? Like, I, I want to make sure that's going well, all right? Thinking about evening, then morning, it releases me to think about preparation. But there's one more idea out of this that we get, and this one's just, a, a, it's poetic, but it's, it's powerful. Evening, then morning, renews hope. What do you mean? The fundamental rhythm, starting all the way back in the beginning of Genesis, is, is evening, then morning, unlike how we typically think morning, then evening, work, and then sleep. The reason that's significant is because sleep is a common metaphor, not just today, but throughout antiquity. Sleep is a common metaphor for something, death. And it makes sense that the ancients, many of them, would view morning, then evening, because that parallels our lives. We're born, we walk through our lives, we work, 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 and then one day we lay down for the final sleep, the long rest. Night falls, the sun sets on our lives. That's metaphors in the Bible, that metaphors throughout antiquity, it's modern day, we view sleep as kind of this picture of death. What then does it mean that God wired the order to not be uh, waking, rising, then lying down, but lying down and then rising? Listen to what it says in Revelation. This is describing heaven. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gate will never be shut by day, and look at this, and there will be no night there. Heaven and eternity is a new and perpetual morning. You know, Jesus could have risen from the grave at any time during the day. Afternoon, lunchtime, middle of the night. He rose at one particular part of the day. Easter morning, Sunday morning, new week, new day. He rose again from the dead, leaving death permanently behind him. Isn't it powerful that God wired it, that morning is the end, not evening, from the very first verses of the Bible that has always been his intention, that we will, we will lay down, but then we will rise. That's your hope. That's the promise he's wired into the fabric of creation. It's that this isn't the end. When the sun sets on your life, that's just the beginning. You have a new morning waiting for you throughout all of eternity. That's your life. That's the new dawn you're waiting for. Nothing this world has to offer. That's the new morning you're waiting for. 
I just want to close with, with this. The best thing you could do going into 2019, there's a lot of things we talked about. I mean, it talks about control, like thinking through that pattern of starting with surrender. I mean, work that into your life. Start with surrender. And out of that, you work before the Lord. How about starting with every evening with preparation? I mean, thinking practically about things, not like sleep and TV. Like, how, what are the things practically starting evening, then morning? But, but how about this? For some of you, the greatest thing you could do is anchor your hope in the right place. Your hope in Jesus Christ. Your hope is that this isn't the end. This isn't the ultimate. This is just the beginning. Eternity is where, is where your life is where you'll spend eternity if you're in Christ Jesus. Some of you are here and you say, look, I don't know what's gonna happen at the end of my life. I don't know if I'd be in heaven or I'm not sure, I hope. Don't put your hope in your own efforts, in your own religion, in your own ability to be good enough because you can't be good enough. Put your hope in Jesus. He paid for your sins so you could have forgiven, so you could be forgiven and you could spend eternity in heaven. Put your faith in Jesus and have assurance of hope. He is our hope. He's alive. He's our living hope. And if that's you, you want to make that certain. What a perfect way to enter into the new year. And I want to lead you in that a simple prayer. So would you all just bow your heads and close your eyes? And if you're watching online, just bow your heads as well. Just get a posture of prayer. If you want to put your hope in Jesus today, I just want to lead you in this simple prayer here today. And just take these words I'm going to say and just repeat them in your heart silently before God and put your faith in Jesus just simply say God thank you for saving me thank you that I can rest in what Jesus did I believe he died on the cross to pay for my sins I believe he rose again from the dead and because of that I too will rise I surrender my life to you I start from a position of surrender. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.